Before we dive in to this episode, I have to tell you what is up on Patreon because I have made so many changes. I put so much into it this summer and there's so much to be had over on Patreon. So first off, you can become a member for just $5 a month or we also have a pay what you can option at $1 a month because you know, stuff is crazy out there, you guys. I get it. And here's what you get when you sign up on Patreon. One bonus episode every month, an extra episode of a book that is only for Patreon subscribers. We have also started running ads on this podcast. I held out for a long time, but finally I caved. And now that we have ads, if you don't want ads anymore, all the episodes on Patreon will go to your podcast feed without ads if you just sign up for Patreon. So all episodes from here going forward, ad free. We also have access to something called a lounge. They gave us early exclusive access. It's been awesome. So basically become a member of the Patreon. We have a cookies only chat where all cookies can talk to each other. It's like a real digital book club where you can talk about books, the episodes. We talked about the Barbie movie, like so much conversation is going on there. That is where all my focus is going as well. That is where all the conversation is happening. You also get, oh my God, there's more. You also get an email of photos that go with the episode and you get emailed that every time an episode comes up. So everything we talked about in the episode, a photo of it will be sent to you as well as the reading list for the month if you want to read along. If you love this podcast, if you want to support this podcast, join the Patreon. It's so much fun. There's so much fun to be had over there. And also we are fully independent. We run fully by your Patreon support. So consider supporting us over there for just $5 a month um, and a pay what you can option at $1. And it's linked in the show notes. It is www.patreon.com slash Chelsea Devantes. If you just want to type it in, uh, it takes two seconds. We send you a podcast feed. You get all of the bonus ad-free stuff. So easy. And um, I'll see you over there in the lounge if you join the Patreon. Welcome to Glamorous Trash. On this podcast, we recap celebrity memoirs, we pontificate about pop culture, and sometimes, if it's a doozy, we cry. If you have ever referenced Mariah Carey in therapy, then this might be the podcast for you. I'm your host, Chelsea Devantes. I'm a TV writer, comedian, and filmmaker, and sometimes I'm in stuff too. Today, we are book clubbing and recapping Ani DeFranco's memoir titled No Walls and the Recurring Dream, which I think is just one of the most compelling celebrity memoir titles ever. Ani is a singer songwriter who has released over 20 albums through her own record label, Righteous Babe. If you aren't already a huge fan of hers, you might be tickled to know that it is her cover of Wishin' and Hopin' that opens the movie My Best Friend's Wedding, which is one of the best movie openings ever. And I always knew that the actress like singing that song was lip syncing, but it really did not connect with me that it's Ani DeFranco, which is so cool. She is a huge feminist icon of the 90s and still a very strong political activist. And we talk a lot about the 9-11 to purpose pipeline on this podcast. And it is one of our Dringo squares. And this book, I will say, is a 9-11 to purpose water slide, water park. I mean, get ready for some 9-11 talk, you guys. We're even going to hear some poems about it. Let's dive in. DeFranco has produced and distributed every single one of her albums independently on Righteous Babe Records. Has there ever been a moment when you've regretted not doing a major label studio album? I don't think so. And working I, with a big time producer? Well, 
it's hard to know about the road not taken, right? You know, actually, I changed my answer. I've regretted it a lot. <laughs> I look back at some of the things that I've recorded and I think, dang, those are some good songs and I didn't do them justice. And if only I had brought in the team of professionals. You know, I was just a kid. A stubborn a kid. A stubborn kid. It was yeah. just like, I'm not gonna wait around for the team of professionals, I'm gonna do it. It's not perfect, but sometimes I do look back at my records and I think, sorry, songs. Our guest today is a dramedy writer from a small town outside of Chicago. She's written and produced over 100 sketches in series while working at BuzzFeed, created an LGBTQ news show for Viacom, and she's in the third season of her podcast, Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead, where she interviews other guests who have lost a parent while examining pop culture representation of death. Recreationally, she's an expert in female-fronted rock bands from the 90s and an avid DVD collector, making her just the best guest ever for this episode. Please welcome Brittany Ashley. Oh, my my gosh, so happy to be here. I am so thrilled to be talking to you. And I just can't believe I haven't begged you to do this podcast sooner. And I introduced my guests with the story of how we first met. And this is going to be one of my favorite ones. I share these stories on the podcast to celebrate female meet cutes, female friendship. How do you make a new female friend? If you don't want to hear this story, skip ahead three minutes. But Brittany, you and I go back to 2009? Yeah, I think it's about 2009. Yeah, it's 2009, 2010. And your girl has just started her first web series, which so novel at the time, by the way. There were maybe like five web series. They really were. And I was like, we got to do this because Lena Dunham is out here talking about being a woman. Like, I want to join in. We got to do a web series. And I bought a Canon camera for $300. I held it in one hand and I held the manual in the other and shot this web series with our four friends. And we got an email that a reporter wanted to do a piece on our web series. And that reporter was Brady Ashley. And we were like, this is the best thing that has ever motherfucking happened to us. <laughs> Yeah. One of your actresses, friends, Mallory Ihorn, she and I worked together at the notorious Heaven on Seven, the New Orleans style restaurant that sat right <laughs> below the AMC on Michigan That's Avenue. Right. And I loved the web series so much. And I was a college journalist for the Chicago Flame at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And so I had to do my piece. As the entertainment editor, it was my purpose to do a piece on y'all. It was the coolest thing that had ever happened to us. And I still have the article that went up in the student newspaper. And like, I mean, I think I begged Mallory to get us 20 copies. I sent it <laughs> home to my mom. I still have it. I And it is just so wild and cool to now be here in Los Angeles over 10 years later. And we are both writers and podcasters. And it started way back when taking the escalator up to get fried okra at your restaurant. Exactly. Anyways, I'm just so excited to have you here. And I don't know, just seeing your face always brings me back to those moments in Chicago Likewise. of just effort and trying and going out at night. And I just love it. Okay. So I had this weird feeling. There was a book we were going to do. And I was like, I'll tell her this one because it's a huge book. But for some reason, I have a feeling I should pitch her Ani DeFranco. Your response was amazing. Tell me what Ani DeFranco means to you. I've been out as a lesbian since I was like 18. 
which, you know, is two years ago. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. 2009, yes. two years ago. Yes. Precisely. She's always been brought up as someone who is deeply important to Gen X lesbians. She wasn't the first musician that I would always go to. I wasn't as into kind of like the more like heavy folk music. It was only in like the last maybe five to seven years that I started like introducing myself to some of those more Lilith Fair era artists that I hadn't been super familiar with. And so Ani DeFranco, you know, when this came up that like there was an opportunity to read her memoir, it was one of those experiences where I had always been waiting for the excuse to learn so much more about her because she's been so important to my queer elders. It's one of those things where like, I've never watched The Sopranos, but I always say if I ever broke my leg or like was bearing a child, that would be a perfect excuse to like finally get into The Sopranos. I am waiting for that too. I have also never seen The Sopranos and I'm like, I need that moment in time where I have saved it for this for this occasion. Exactly. And so this was kind of my like leg breaking bearing child moment where I was like, if I have eight spare hours, I am going to read this book and learn more about her. And so this was that opportunity. And this episode was actually originally inspired by a cookie on the Patreon. And I wish I could remember their name, but they said, why don't you do a Lilith Fair episode? And I was like, that is genius. March is Women's History Month. Let's do it. Only to realize that Sarah McLaughlin does not have a memoir. But I, I really wanted to do Ani DeFranco's book. And my experience with her is also limited. However, when I was 18 or 17, I can't remember, we were living in New Orleans and I went to a Joan Baez concert at I think Tipitina's because they let in people who were not 21. And I remember her being like, Ani DeFranco is here up in the rafters. And I was like, ah, looking up and like trying to like see her. I'm not going to say I'm a diehard fan, but I've always been like a fan from afar. Yeah. Now. And, and there's always been this like, even if you weren't a fan of hers, I think you knew that you should respect her. Yeah, you. yes, exactly. Like I knew that like per the feminist movement, respect goes to Ani. Now with that said, I have never disliked a memoir more. No, no, I'm not gonna say <laughs> never. And so here's my question for you. I sort of feel like if you are a diehard Ani DeFranco fan, you know, don't listen to this episode. Just go read the book like, you know her, you love her. She's going to give you what you know of her. <laughs> However, <laughs> I'm so curious, you as a fan, did you like this book? It was a bit of a slog, I will say. You know, I read like the first three chapters a couple weeks ago, and then it just kind of sat on my nightstand and I was like, going to get to it. As a burden. Yeah. As a burden gonna, for this podcast. Yes, going to keep doing it. And then yesterday, I just like jammed through probably... 200 pages. I felt like I had to free myself from this book. Yes. I was like, I got to do this as fast as I can because this is so painful. I even tried switching over to the audio because I was like, maybe that'll help. It didn't. I went back to reading it. So I just want to state clearly, I think you can like love and enjoy Ani and all she's like given to art and her artistry. However, if you also enjoy the craft of memoir, it's hard to imagine this being an enjoyable memoir. It felt like she kind of wrote it down haphazardly like once maybe and just straight to print yeah straight to print there was a lot of like this was written on a napkin and then I put it into my computer and this is what it was it was also really hard to keep track of all the different men that she was talking about and some of the women too I like some but only very few women which was very surprising. few women the main characters in this book are the dudes and which you know 
fine, but not what I thought she was known for. Well, first, I actually want to do something, which is I want to read the almost last page of this book. It's page 302. When I got there, I was furious. And so for listeners, I actually think if you hear it now, you won't be as mad as I was. So she said, I hope you're not sitting there right now going, wait, this book is about to end. What about everything that happened after 2001? What about pregnancy and birthing and parenting? You'll have to forgive me. I only ever intended this book to be a making of story. I probably should have warned you at the onset. Yeah. The remake is a story that is still writing itself right now. A story is so much in motion that words couldn't even begin to nail it down. But rest assured, the greatest happiness, fulfillment, and accomplishments of the girl in this book are still ahead of her. Truth is, this book is full of omissions, and they're not exclusive to the realm of what happened next. A life, anyone's life, is vast and uncontainable, and I've discovered that you can make a whole book full of people and things, and still there will be much left over. Yes, Ani, that is true. If you never go back into the first draft, you will just write a bunch of things that don't matter. She said, I've left so much and so many people out. I feel squeamish now, like maybe I should write this book again and tell you different stuff. Yes, it's too late for that. No, it's not. Go back. The court stenographer's duties are almost done and the case of the righteous babe is closed. Then she had a very, very beautiful line. History is not only a story told, but a story chosen. That's beautiful. But I don't believe that these are the stories she really would have chosen had she given it more time and thought because it's random. Or setting herself up for the sequel. What happens after 9-11? What does happen after 9-11? And when I was reading this, I mean, immediately we're talking about 9-11. We're talking about George Bush. Opening up with an absolute banger poem about 9-11. I did not expect that. I like that you said banger. And I want you to fight for her, this whole book. (laughs) I want you, I truly, I feel bad feeling this way. So I want you to- No, no, no. There's going to be places where I also disagree, I would like to say. Okay, Good, good. Because I really didn't want a spoken word 9-11 poem (laughs) for seven pages. Well, that's where we differ artistically, Chelsea. That's right. That's right. Because I was like, oh my God, we're in 9-11 and we're snapping our fingers. We're playing bongo drums. We're talking about George Bush. But okay, so I'm reading it. I was like, well, this makes sense. The book was published probably in like 2000. That's what I thought too. Right? No. I did not realize 20 motherfucking 19. 2019. That is the definition of never forget. It's still right (laughs) there. Not only never forget, never go on. Never go on. Never go on. Yeah. The way she was writing about it didn't feel like it was being written in hindsight either. It felt like we were really in the moment of the most important thing in her life. And this also happened with Carly Simon's book where after she and James Taylor divorced, the book is just over. It's just done because that is where the majority of her big life moments lived for her. And I feel that way with Ani. I don't feel like it's a making of story. I feel like this 9-11 moment is, was sort of her peak. And I don't know that a second book is coming. What do you think? So obviously we know about the chicks and how like the immediate 9-11 aftermath deeply affected their career. And I think I was like, oh, was Ani DeFranco a part of this too? And I like simply didn't realize it. You know, she was really outspoken and then this impacted her career, but that just wasn't the case. I think that she was just trying to grasp on to like some historical moment that she could draw a line from it to herself to. And 
I don't think there's another book coming. I actually watched an interview that she did for some sort of like morning talk show, which as we read the book, she probably hated doing. And yeah. she mentioned that when she initially wanted to write a book, she wanted it to be like a how to make it as a young artist who wants to detach themselves from capitalism. That would have been great. But then she said she realized in 2019 that she actually has no idea how she would give that advice now because the landscape as a young musician is so different now. So that's when she shifted for this being more of a memoir. And the talk show host (laughs) asked her, you know, how hard was it to actually write this book? And Ani said that it felt more vulnerable than even releasing an album, that this was way harder for her to write this book than it ever was to write music. So she does admit that I think there was some errors in even the conception of this book. That makes so much sense. I don't think celebrities especially realize like memoir is an art form the way songwriting is. And some people should not attempt songwriting. (laughs) Like, And some people should not attempt memoir. And if you are not ready and interested in the craft of that and and being vulnerable it's a pointless form give us a, another album instead is how i would feel yeah yeah that makes sense and i was also listening to an interview she gave where she said her career in the 90s she's doing like arenas and i think early 2000s like she's doing these huge shows and now she is back to like clubs and small venues so maybe something did happen in that 9-11 era that affected her career but we wouldn't know it from the book because she never said so i have no idea okay let's talk about her childhood so she is raised in buffalo new york which it kind of, I don't know, upstate New York has this really distinct feeling to it that I can totally see in Ani. She grows up in a house with no walls, which is part of the title of the book. It is so wild. So first of all, her mom is a foot taller than her father. Her father is so short that they did not have a graduation gown tiny enough for <laughs> Yes, <them. laughs> that, that like magazine insert of the photo all the spread. photos. Yeah. yeah, that was incredible. And both of her parents went to MIT, right? Yeah. Yeah. Then they're both geniuses and they get married right after graduation, mom in a gown, dad in no gown. And (laughs) they design and live in this house that is completely circular so that you can see everyone and everything at all times. And then there's no walls or partitions. So you don't have your own bedroom. It's just all the beds see each other, which sees the kitchen, which sees the bathroom. Yeah, this is also how like jails were set up for a while too. Yeah, and shocking to no one, they will divorce. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I will say that was actually one of the most interesting parts of the book to me was her seeing her mom's point of view. The, The whole story about how her mom effectively left the family and her trying to sympathize with why her mom would leave, which is that she was a full-time architect and then she would come home and in that time period, you know, the woman was still expected to like take care of the children and cook and clean. And so not only would she go to work full time, but then she would come home and not get a lot of support from her husband. So she had this massive loss of identity of like, what, who who is she living for? And so she left. And I found it quite fascinating that she kind of sympathized with her mom there, even though that was probably one of the hardest things she'd gone through. 
Yeah, it was interesting too because in the sympathizing with her mom, we actually didn't really get any emotions of how she felt as a child. Totally. There's a sentence in there where she says, I think I'm sort of realizing that this might have wrecked me, but I don't know. And I got the feeling she still hadn't interrogated it as of this writing. And her mom not only leaves the home, but without any fanfare, which I think is possibly worse. Like if you're going to have a big falling out with a parent, like let's have the night mom left. And instead she just quietly comes home less and less until one day they realize she's just in another apartment living her own life. Which signals to me that the that ambiguity. was- Yeah, and also that was probably the right thing to do for her mom. If you're just leaving and nobody is like fighting for you to come back, holy shit. But also you have left- two children just fully unparented and Ani just sort of becomes homeless and emancipated also without fanfare. She's just like, and then I just kind of wasn't there and I tried to live with my mom and then she left. And then, then I was just kind of homeless and I had 30 year old boyfriends when I was a teenager. And then I would get kicked out of housing because other women wanted to date him, but they wanted to date me even though I was 15 years old. I needed a whole book on the childhood. I, I don't even know what her dad was up to or what she was feeling. I 1000% agree. Her mom left obviously, but her dad and her brother who was also going through something. There was still a home there. There was still safety there. I was curious how she immediately went into being emancipated and bopping around and not having a place to live. I couldn't draw the straight line to when that all went down. Yeah, because clearly living with her dad was so bad. However, on page 47, this was another really shocking but beautifully written part of the book. She said, they never let me read my father's suicide note. I'm not even sure who they were. I have always resented, quote, them for it and all other acts of arbitrary control and intrusion. And she said, his suicide was unsuccessful. He survived after a good stomach pumping, just like my brother. But seeing him locked inside a mental ward, humiliated and powerless in his open in the back hospital gown was sad as a death. It was foreshadowing of the nursing home years that would come later down the road, once again, stripping him of his dignity. And so her dad has attempted to die by suicide. So has her brother. There's just so much here that we can infer that it sounds obliterating to the soul. 1000%. And doesn't, yeah, doesn't really get touched on all too much except for later in life when her mom comes to live with her and never unpacks her boxes and yeah, a lot. There's just so much said while being completely untouched. And then you have things like Michael. Now, the book is written so confusingly because it's written in tangents. So it's a chapter and then within chapters, there's just like names or words and kind of go on like a page and a half of a person. So it's really hard to follow stories. So let me tell you what I took from this Michael story and you tell me if it's what you took from okay. it. And all of this, when you hear about her childhood, you're like, this makes so much sense, but she doesn't connect it. Michael is a 30-year-old man. She is nine and 10 years old. How do they meet? I don't know. They become musicians together. He is 30. She is nine and 10 years old. They busk together on the street. He plays these gigs in bars. And with little Ani by his side, who I'm sure they assumed was his daughter, performing with him, they made this cute little duo and pair of, of folk singers. And 
Michael teaches her about songwriting, about being an artist. He also sounds homeless at times, and he takes her everywhere with him. So this little nine-year-old with this person named Michael, no affiliation to her parents, is her keeper a lot of times in her childhood. And she's like, it was just this incredible friendship. It wasn't weird at all. Calm down. Then pages and pages and pages later, she was like, but suddenly I was 16 years old and I fucked Michael. (laughs) So what? Yeah. Yeah. Lots to unpack there. There There's so many men in this book. It was so hard to keep them all straight because she kind of like circulated around the same men for a long time. Like there were so many pages where I was like, is she with Scott? Is she not with Scott? We're talking about Scott next because yeah, Scott was an enigma and yet the most repeated name throughout the book. Yeah. But there were times where I was like, who the fuck is Scott? And then she was like, Scott and I broke up. I was like, wait, this has been your partner? (laughs) Okay, this is somewhat validating to know that this book was quite confusing timeline wise. I was like, my reading comprehension isn't the best. And so maybe I'm just not putting all these timelines together, but it is validating to know that I wasn't alone. Absolutely. And I also think because it is written so scattered and in tangents, you can't really engage into a singular storyline, which also helps your brain process these characters. So I just want to read this thing with Michael. She said, my journey through puberty disturbed the ecosystem of Michael and me. Our friendship was true and deep, but when one of us changed from a little girl to a woman, well, one of us, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, like, okay, so that's you, honey. It became confused. Then she goes into italics, which made me think she was excerpting like a letter from Michael, (laughs) but I believe this is her writing. The whole thing imploded in slow motion one day as you leaned down gently to kiss me. So this means this 30-year-old man is now kissing this She says puberty, so 14. Who knows how old? 14, 15, 16? And who you have been caretaking since she was nine. You having been abducted by the notion that our story was some kind of timeless folk ballad or smoky French film or something, our love has come full circle, you said, and for a few days you seemed giddy with this full circle thing. That's disgusting. That feels grooming. You've known her since she was nine. Then I watched as that fantasy crumbled inside your eyes and an immense guilt descended into your heart. Good. You had been swept away from your artist spirit by the tide of my budding sexuality. You who was invisibly crushed under the weight of regret. For my part, I was not as nauseated by the whole roller coaster ride because I knew you loved me and because never for an instant was I scared of you. A young woman becomes familiar with the sight of men struggling with the opposing forces of attraction and propriety. And mostly what I felt in that moment was a deep sympathy for you because I loved you back. It would be many years before we would come together again as we had been water under the bridge, my friend. Uh, uh, I aghast. Can't. I'm aghast and also confused. I'm mostly aghast and then I'm also confused because... Yeah, there's this sympathy for someone who seems to have fully groomed her into a sexual relationship, but then taken a step back. But then also they did come back together, but then in what way? And it makes me just so sad. This was like her only adult in her life. And this is how she views it. Yeah. And knowing that this was written, you know, only a couple years ago and her still not being able to see that relationship for what it was, especially knowing how deeply she loathes these institutional power dynamics. There's no victim blaming here, obviously, but it's fascinating that even as a grown woman, she doesn't see that relationship differently the way that one would see it. The way that even vaguely reading about it feels clear. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break right now and we'll be right back. So perhaps you can tell from this podcast, but I'm a very uh, anxious person. I, I operate on a high frequency and going to sleep is hard for me. It's hard to fall asleep. It's hard to stay asleep. And so the other night I got Next Evo in the mail, which is a CBD company. And I ate one of their strawberry flavored CBD gummies that was for sleep. And in the middle of the night, I had one of my normal wake ups and I thought to myself, ooh, I'm like, I feel so nice. I'm just going to go right back to bed. And as I was falling asleep, I had the thought of like, wow, I'm, I'm going back to sleep. And in the morning, I had forgotten I ate the gummy and I was like, how do, why did I sleep so well? And then I remembered it. So the next night I'm like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to try this again. Let's see if magic sleep happens. And lo and behold, I slept wonderfully. So I am so excited to talk about Next Evo Naturals because they have developed a clinically tested water soluble form of CBD and their gummies and capsules are proven to work faster and absorb four times better than oil based products. I am assuming this is the fancy schmancy science that made this work because I have totally taken oil <laughs> droplets of CBD before, like during quarantine. Yes, yeah, or my husband, he was just, we were just dropping. CBD into each other's mouths and you know it didn't do much so this is thrilling that I felt this way I hope you could feel this way too they also have their strongest gummy ever the new extra strength daily wellness CBD gummies they also have CBD lotion and you know you know I mean instantly on my skin just anything that can help me relax. I'm so into it. Next Evo is the only brand that has conducted human clinical studies to test the value of their products and their label contents are 100% guaranteed. So what you see is what you get. Leave oil behind and start the year with more effective and fast acting CBD from Next Evo Naturals. Get 25% off using code glamorous at nextevo.com. That's 25% off at nextevo.com. N-E-X- T-E-V-O.com with promo code Glamorous. When you think of the messiest celebrity feuds of all time, who comes to mind? Is it Taylor Swift and Scooter Braun? Maybe it's Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan, or just about anyone from any reality TV franchise. Dis and Tell is a podcast from Wondery, hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each hilarious episode will take you through one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds and serve you a little dose of chaos every week. They recently covered the story of one of the greatest feuds you've probably never heard about, Prince and Michael Jackson. Even though this feud never really played out in the press, there's still plenty of drama and a lot to unpack. And the explosive and dramatic fallout between Candy Burris and Phaedra Parks of the Real Housewives of Atlanta. They went from TV besties to sworn mortal enemies and their relationship ended with a criminal allegation that rocked Bravo and its fandom for years to come. So if you're ready to gossip and add some more chaos to your life, follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Disintel early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Okay, let's dive back into the episode. Okay, so then we got to talk about Scott. Well, first, can we talk about how she was on a dance team called Floor Play? Please. <laughs> That's it, really. Is that when she got <laughs> emancipated, she joined this like dance troupe called floor play because she yeah. was a dancer for a while yeah and she worked in construction <laughs> she's constantly doing construction she's building houses she's picking up gigs she had a very colorful first 
15 years of her life. Like even the reason that she started doing music was in order to afford going to like horse girl camp. Like she panhandled in order to be able to do that. It's fascinating to read that music wasn't her first love. It was kind of like all these different other artistic pursuits, but it does sound like Michael was a driving force in making her realize that music was her like main pursuit. Yeah, which also makes sense to why he means so much to her if music is the thing that gave her her purpose. Yeah, there's a lot there. A lot there. Okay, now going to Scott, because again, there's not really through lines in this book. I would have hoped the through line would have been what it was like for her to make it in show business. I have no idea. I have no idea how she made it in any way. I didn't even realize that suddenly I was reading about years in her life where she was very successful until she was like, I turned this MTV gig down. I'm like, how do we get to MTV? Totally, because the way that it's written is that everything has been a constant uphill battle, that everything was a fight, whether it was like an actual fight to make something happen or it was like her principles going against this opportunity that she was given. Like when she got a record deal, but then ended up turning it down or when she got that late night set, but she was like, okay, but I'm going to do my like really intense poem. And they're like, no, never mind. Like it was fascinating that even when she was successful, it was written in such a way that it felt like she was clawing her way there the entire time, which it sounded like maybe she was, but it was hard to track. How successful are you in this current moment? There were times that, like you said, really successful opportunities were handed to her. She hated it, hated the notion of it. And yeah, it, it, it was hard to track, but weirdly easier to track were these relationships. Yes. Like Scott. And Scott kind of shows up. He's like some dude and he he's going to law school. And I was like, I guess this guy Scott's going to law school, becomes a lawyer. Then I read this paragraph. She said, luckily, I was not the only one messing around outside of my boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. Scott was also young and we lived in two different cities, increasingly in two different worlds. We wordlessly adopted a don't ask, don't tell policy And every now and then our bubble of monogamy would burst dramatically and need to be mended. We weren't able to define our relationship for ourselves. So we struggled within traditional paradigms and we struggled within ourselves. We postponed our day of reckoning. So they are together. Yeah. They have not talked about the fact that they are not monogamous, which means one person fully could have thought they were monogamous. (laughs) That would have been Scott. Well, I think he did, especially that one scene where, was it? Bufa was that yes I think it's on page 102 it's it's such a great scene (laughs) he's jealous of this woman named Bufa and Ani writes Bufa described for me later a scene that happened behind my back Scott was banging things around on a table in the back of the room setting up my mailing list and tapes while Bufa leaned in a doorway watching him finding his banging amusing she asked amusedly which again let's just talk about the writing here finding his banging amusing she asked amusedly (laughs) Oh, this, is what, this is where we go to thesaurus.com <laughs> amusingly. Okay. She asked amusedly, what are you doing? He stopped, locked eyes with her and replied slowly, I'm making myself indispensable, <laughs> which great line. Yeah. I didn't even have but to go fighting. to, I didn't even have to go to that page. And I knew precisely, I like that quote is imprinted in my brain. Was that her first time 
having anything romantic outside the relationship. There was a lot of moments where I was like, are you still with Scott? <laughs> I'm confused. I don't think it's possible to fully know because like she's like, we're on, we're off and we didn't know and they didn't know. It's like, so, so we don't know. Imagine being her best friend and trying to track all this. But that scene in particular, I really was fascinated by because I also clocked that as the first time that she was with a woman. And so I could just see that scene of Scott trying to like help her sell her tapes while Bufa's just like standing there. Cause I think I had been the Bufa so much in college where I was hopelessly in love with this girl who like had an on again, off again boyfriend. And yeah, I just like really felt for Bufa and the way that she described this scene. Also, I read this to my wife. Bufa offered herself to me as my laboratory and I accepted. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty. Squeeze. It's like both sexy and like, huh? Yeah. Um, no. I think if we go and interview Bufa, I don't think Bufa would be like, yeah, I just like totally wanted this chick to use me as the experiment. I knew that going into this, there had to be some queer love stories in here, but it always got trumped by Scott or Goat. Yeah, Goat. <laughs> Uh, you know but, what? I, I like go goats coming. I did like goat too, except goat also bad. It's yeah, goat was <laughs> tough. Maybe his name was doing a lot of the work, but yes. And I do think this is something that Ani would be upset about, which is that I also expected more queer love stories or even like sexual stories or dating stories in this book. And I think that's her whole thing, which is like, why do people expect me to be with women when I am also with men? Yeah, the, the men overtook this. And let me just pause to say, yeah. I've been the Bufa. What an iconic phrase. <laughs> oh, I've been the Bufa. Like, raise your hand. You've been Bufa? Oh, I've been Bufa. <laughs> and yeah, also, it's kind of this wild thing, too, where Bufa sounds like cool. And and it, I mean, she's laboratory, which sucks for her. But it's like, whoa, sexy. And Scott is just like some guy organizing the closet. Yes. <laughs> for years. Yes. And Scott also has this huge hand in her success, in her career, and this is like one of the paragraphs I highlighted for, okay, she's really making it and growing as an artist, but also what's going on. And Dale is a guy who is some type of manager that she has signed this like two-year contract. One year. I think it was one year. One year. Because that was like okay. a huge, not to spoil, but lawsuit. So she said, going it on my own is not exactly what happened next, however. Scott had been moving in from the periphery, providing organizational support where Dale's had been failing. Husbander, we got a husbander here. <laughs> Scott kept telling me that I needed to get my shit together before I got audited. My habit of hitting the road and transforming whatever funds came my way into greasy diner food for my belly and gas for my car with no actual record of what was earned or spent was viewed by him as unsustainable. It was maybe a bit premature considering my income was barely at a taxable level, but he still had a point. Now that there were contracts being signed and actual W-2 forms being filled out with my name on them, I would need to step up my game. Scott's first move in Dale's wake was to pull out two envelopes before I left on my next trip and hand them to me. On one, he wrote gig money, and on the other, he wrote tape money. He told me to keep a running tally of how many tapes I sold on the tape money envelope. Anyways, then we go into a lot about envelopes, but... <laughs> yeah, there's like three pages on envelopes. <laughs> Yeah. Dale, this manager, he's there, but now he's gone. So the contract is over. He's going to sue her later. Scott is now in as the manager or just the envelope guy. Yeah. Scott has, I guess, abandoned his career as a lawyer. Now he is going to be 
the manager of Righteous Babe Records, which she started when she was 19. And yeah, he's on the road. He's he's her guy. It's interesting because she's saying she is at a barely taxable income, which for the 90s, it's hard to know what figure that would be. But from what I've looked up, that is somewhere between like 7000 to 15000 for a single person. For a family of two would be around like 20000 That would be the poverty line before this would go into effect of paying taxes. So how is this lawyer quitting and going on the road to run a business with that level of income? I think the answer is the power of love. You're right, Brittany. It was the power of love. And that's it. When you put that on a W-2, the world is your oyster. <laughs> yeah, I think it was probably a silly decision on his part, especially because Ani spends a significant amount of time. I think there was like five pages where she talked about how his pursuit of becoming I can't remember the type of law that he was studying, but it was certainly a very well-intentioned pursuit. And it sounded like he kind of just like abandoned that completely. And also law school is expensive. So you know what the answer might be if it's not love? Family money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Generational wealth, because those are some expensive bills. That being said, Ani does become hugely successful. Okay. So Right here, I make the note, this is like a daily journal. It's like your own journal that got published, but you also kept the details and emotions from yourself as well. Because you're just like talking about envelopes and stuff. And then we get to the Mish Festival. Now this is, <sighs> this is a real bummer. Also, she's not going to talk about Lilith Fair. Is she? Well, she didn't perform at Lilith Fair. No, I know, but it was a whole thing that she didn't. Yes, that was surprising to me. And she didn't really talk about other female artists of that time either. She talked about Amy Ray of Indigo Girls. She kind of shit-talked her. She talked about one moment with Tori Amos, but she doesn't actually talk about other female artists of that time, which I found really surprising because that is also like a huge part of Lilith Fair culture which for anyone who doesn't know who's listening, Sarah McLaughlin in the early 90s noticed that when she was going on tour that her label wouldn't allow another woman to go on tour with her. They basically were like, two women on a bill can't bring in money. That's impossible. And so she was like, fuck that. So she started this entire traveling festival for three years called Lilith Fair, where it was only female musicians and it was highly successful. And they pursued Ani DeFranco just as they pursued Alanis Morissette to perform and neither of them did. But it's in our brains. We're like, of course they performed at Lilith Fair. Completely. Because when the Lilith Fair episode was pitched to me, I was like, oh, well, I got a, Ani DeFranco has a memoir. It's like, oh, well, she wasn't there. And very purposely wasn't there. So Yes, Ani declines and other people declines. And I've heard other female singers say like, oh, it like put women in a box. It made them so that they could only be like, quote, women artists. We could get into for hours, but instead we're going to talk about Mish. Oh, so we talking about Mish. 
We talk about Mish. Now, like you said, Mish was the turfy sister to Lilith Fair. And for anyone who doesn't know what a turf is, it means you have not been following JK Rowling. And turf has many definitions. Brittany, what's the main connotation that you think of when you think of turf? Yeah, well, it stands for trans exclusionary radical feminist. And so, you know, I can sit here from 2024 and be like, this is what it means to me right now, which is that there just was like a lack of intersectionality with your feminism. But like Mishfest is a perfect symbol for what that was, which is essentially that this festival was created for women, but they made a lot of effort to specify that it was only women born women. And so trans women weren't allowed in this space. So it was like a space that was created for women But they went through a lot of effort to specify that trans women weren't allowed here. And obviously, even still today, there are so many super harmful misconceptions that trans women could at all be conflated with like the damage and harm that cis men inflict upon women. So Mishfest is like a perfect encapsulation of this where it's feminists who believe that they're doing the right thing by making it a safe space for women, but they are excluding an entire population of women who are usually more vulnerable to like wanting and needing this space. And the way that Ani describes Mishfest is, I, I pulled out this this particular quote, if it's okay to read, it's from 175. Please. I wonder if it's the exact same quote I highlighted. Please read okay. it. After soundcheck, I walked out to investigate because there was all these thin strings crisscrossing the field in front of me where the audience would later be seated. I found that the audience area had been divided into many sections so that no one audience member would have to suffer the proximity of someone who else who might disturb them. There were children welcome zones and no children zones, dancing zones and no dancing zones, smoking and non-smoking, even a zone designated perfume or scent free. What the fuck? Why can't we all just get along? The quest to make everyone happy all the time seemed to have led to a world of micromanagement in this place. Extreme inclusion had circled back onto itself and become its opposite, which I found really fascinating to read. That is the exact quote I had also (laughs) highlighted. She talked about how she said, I wanted to get the hell out of there. And she said, the masculine ability to just focus on a task without getting all up in your feels in the absence of gender oppression showed itself to me as a kind of grace, which is like, it's so, it's so twisted. And then she said, I made the mistake of shit talking the Michigan women's (laughs) music festival after I left there spinning as I was into my disappointment. I made some enemies in doing so. But then she also takes this weird middle ground of like, you know, I understand where trans women are coming from, but I also understand where the organizers are coming from. She takes this like really no opinion opinion in having the middle ground of being like, I understand both sides. Yeah, that's the next page where another thing this book does a lot, which it is long lectures. Yes, but it's not. She's got to keep that activist title, baby. Uh, Yeah, I mean, she's really earning it. But I like personally, I want to take my lectures through academia, TED Talk (laughs) or like a pop culture thing where surprise it was a it had a lesson to it the whole time. 
This feels like someone who got high <laughs> and just started talking to you and you cannot leave. And it happens 100 no, times because yes. like facts are all over the place. We're not following like a through line. <laughs> like, she was like, I can see the women born women admission policy and why that's important. I can also see why it's important for trans women to have their spaces. And then she said, we still live in a rape culture. We live in a world where people with ovaries do not own their bodies or possess all of their basic civil rights. And it kind of goes on in a way where it's like you are excluding trans women from rape culture. Yes. Even just statistically, like, yes, we live in a rape culture and it is higher for trans women. And I listened to, again, this is 2019. She felt it very important to write this out. She said, like, I think trans rights are so important. I just don't want to leave behind women. I don't want to exclude women from really important things. And I was like... <laughs> Then don't. Yeah, you, you <laughs> like, just also, now like counteracted what you had initially tried to say. Yeah. If I could ask her one question, I don't even want to. No, I don't want that conversation. But I would hypothetically want to see. You know how like, long it would go on for. I know. Which is like how in a movement that includes trans women, how exactly does that leave cis women out? Totally. Because it doesn't. We're all included. And then the only movement that does is when it's the Mish Festival. So, okay. Anyways. I wrote, I'm at the worst lecture. I said, she's high and won't stop telling me about like how voting works. Listen, pretty fucking ironic for me on a podcast where I talk about the shit all the time to be like, stop facturing me when I fucking bring it up all the time myself. I get it. I get it. I just, I don't want seven pages. Yeah. I want to know what happened when your mom left. It feels like a distraction from what you're actually feeling. Like it, it's the thing that my therapist would say to me, which is that, you're intellectualizing your feelings instead of feeling them. And that's kind of yeah. what this book feels like in many ways, is that she's intellectualizing a lot of her thoughts and placing them in these really theoretical places. But it is taking away from what we really want to know when we read this book, which is how she's actually feeling. Yeah, how you're feeling and and the personal moments that happen. Yes. And then maybe tell me a little bit about capital punishment. Did we bypass the Shawnee... Mexico trip or is that coming <laughs> no 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 please take us there because I was like yeah I was gonna skip right over it so please <laughs> well oh, we can't skip over this because <laughs> I had to read the paragraph at least three times there was this particular moment that happened on her trip in Mexico with her friend Shawnee where they became lovers suddenly and she also outed Shawnee as a squirter <laughs> <laughs> like yes that is like closer to what I want to read but sure it was like they're on this trip where they both have these kind of like straggler men hanging out with them who may or may not be in love with them and they're going to different bars and they're meeting all these different men and then suddenly they become lovers and she just mentions out of nowhere that they had to always change the sheets and there was a lot of cleanup whenever they hooked up because she was an ejaculator. I had to read that at least three times to be like, how did we get here? What? But is there a world where maybe she was talking about her sexual prowess? Like, that's how good I was. We were wrecking the sheets. Or do you think it was only about Shawnee? I don't know. Like, at this point, Ani has already earned her dyke pass. She like has her badge already. I don't think she needed to put that in. But if I was Shawnee reading this book, I would be like, excuse me, that's for me. 
Absolutely. Okay, I just want to make sure that didn't get skipped over because I'm really glad you made us go back. Thank you. Thank you. I just think that there's certain things that fans want to know, and you've got your finger on the pulse, (laughs) and I need you to keep bringing it back up because I was like, "What is this weird two pages of Mexico for?" You're right. The purpose was to talk about that sweet, sweet waterfall. (laughs) Okay. Well, because then we get to goat and. Goat is introduced where it's like with the little tangent title, Goat. She was like, there was this guy who was a friend of Andy's from Toronto whose mother had also named him Andrew. Since the name rationing was a little steep in our three-person operation, I dubbed Andrew Goat. To me, he looked more like a goat than a person named Andrew. And I couldn't understand why no one else had seen this. Okay, so then four pages later, My moment of reckoning with Scott had arrived. I told him I'd fallen in love with Goat. Scott said, well, you sure have been a lot happier since he came along. He said the last thing he wanted was to stand in the way of my happiness. He showed his love for me in a profound way and took it like a man. Scott released me from my conflicted state and Goat's lady released him. Untethered, Goat and I floated like helium balloons in the air. Let's get married, I said one bleary morning in an airport waiting room. I was watching an elderly couple sitting near us, the old lady with her head resting on her husband's shoulder. And so we did. One, this happened so fast. It happened so, it happened in a paragraph. They went from, we are going to confess our love to one another. I also didn't know if Goat loved her back. But we confessed our love to one another. We got married. Yes. And I I don't know how Scott's been around, how long Scott has been around. It is possible it was a decade. <laughs> Hard to it say. was years, years. It's at least years. And he's just kind of released. And then Goat is like hot and heavy. Because now we've already gone through all the turf pages. So now when she's like, don't worry, Scott took it like a man when I cheated on him and fell in love with someone else. Or maybe she didn't cheat. I have no idea. But goat was cheating. And I, I, I thought that was a really odd way of phrasing totally. it. And then she gets so much shit from the queer community for marrying a man. And all of her lesbian fans are like, how could you, you've betrayed us. This kind of goes into that conversation of like by erasure and, and where bisexual women's places and the LGBTQ movement and where it was in the 90s and where it is now. And I will say this, I recently did an episode. It's one of my favorite episodes. It's the episode we did about Anne Heche's memoir. And we were talking about how Ellen and Anne were at this huge rally and Anne gave a speech that was like really not good talking about sort of maybe being gay or being bi, being a choice. And I did get a really intense podcast review being like, how dare you besmirch her bisexuality? And so I feel like this is a really tense topic and one that Annie has been dealing with her whole life. Yeah, even like a recent interview where she was like, bisexual was the term put even in front of my name. Like I was just so defined by my sexuality. And I think there's a lot of musicians, like a lot of queer musicians who do want to run away from the label of their sexuality because they're like, I just want to be seen as an artist. But Ani in particular is such a fascinating figure because she had so many lesbian fans and she was so coveted as like this icon of like radicalism and fucking the patriarchy. And one of the few gay women who was that popular in music, right? Like how many did 
we have in that moment to look up to. Yeah, like like the Indigo Girls, Melissa Etheridge, which I honestly can't even in my brain tell you like at what years they came out just because, you know, I'm 16. So I can't tell you that. <laughs> but there there was such a rarity. And obviously, like back then, there wasn't the internet where you could go and like search for other representations. The pool was very small. And her concerts, I think, were a place of safety for a lot of queer women and so she just like became the symbol that probably went beyond her as a person. It's very clear in her book that she was deeply offended when people started to judge her personal choices. But if I was a 20-something lesbian in the 90s and this was my radical icon who would be like, fuck the patriarchy. And then as soon as she gets off stage, she holds Goat's hand and they get married. I think I understand where the dissonance would lie for fans back then obviously now if people are still mad about that it's like get over it you know because we have yeah, we have so yeah. many more out queer artists like we have Muna who is so out so queer and and there's all these other spaces but I imagine when you have so few people and so few spaces it's almost like a betrayal a betrayal it feels like a betrayal even though it's just her life exactly but I but I think back then because there was so little representation and there was like crumbs i could see how that would be hurtful in a way that like goes beyond ani like yeah live your life marry goat whatever that was the best choice for you that's what you wanted but i understand if back then why fans would be a bit besmirched yeah she, and she felt really hurt by it it's like both parties felt so hurt by this maybe lack of understanding. Yeah, and I think maybe she wasn't fully aware of what she meant to lesbians, if I had to guess. And I don't think that she should have lived her life any differently by any means. Yeah. But I think it was likely very hard for any like queer female artist to do the right thing because there's so much pressure to be the only one. Like, you're the only one. Yeah. You have to be the icon for so many different people who have so many different expectations of you. And I imagine that pressure is just really crushing. And I understand that was her experience of like, I don't understand. This was so hurtful. It's surprising to me that she maybe wasn't outside of herself and been like, oh, I guess it did probably suck as a lesbian fan to lose that. Well, it's interesting too, because again, it's written in 2019. Yeah. These, these are the places where I thought it's being written in 2003, you know, not that she should have done anything differently, yeah, exactly. but I, it's interesting that the point of view hasn't, I don't know, the insights or lessons learned. Hasn't gotten any more like nuanced in any sort of way. Yeah. And I get the, and we're going to get into it, extreme sense that Ani doesn't like any label. No. Like sexuality or not, like she doesn't care what you label her. She don't like it. She doesn't like an identity label. She certainly doesn't like a record label that isn't her own. <laughs> That's right. And I mean, Righteous Babe Records is going on this whole time. Like every album has gone through Righteous Babe Records. She has never like given over to another record deal, which she certainly had the opportunity to do. And basically she starts getting sued by Dale, who it comes back to say like, hey, I know I was your manager for a year, but you should give me everything you've ever made for the rest of your life, actually, because I am key to your success. Yeah. Classic it's piece of shit, dude. They then like go to court and he can't even file the correct paperwork. And his <laughs> yeah. lawyer is classic such a dumbass. Dale. She calls him an ambulance chaser. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's like classic Dale. He couldn't even file the shit to like <laughs> actually hold the trial. However, she had spent so much money and years fighting it up to that point 
only for him to not even be able to like follow through on anything. That's infuriating. She also said, I could handle malicious lawsuits. There was another one after Dale's, stalkers and hackers. When Righteous Babe Records finally grudgingly entered the world online, we got help for ransom by Russian pirates. We were essentially ahead of our time, by the way. <laughs> so then she talked about what happened with Goat. She said, instead of feeling grounded by my marriage, I felt pressure there too. I couldn't even tell you if Goat was ready to be a true partner to me because for my part, I was too busy feeling utterly alone. My husband had become just one more person who would die without my attention. One more person to make myself totally available to. One more person to carry. He was always clawing at me, wanting to have sex. I found myself beating him back or worse, acquiescing because it was the easiest way to get to the part where he's snoring and I am up all night gripping some deeply worrying aspect of my life between my teeth. This is obviously where it fully turned for me because this sounds like rape while also being described as something else. But beating him back is horrifying. That's, that's unbelievable. And she's like, I started cheating on him when that didn't work. I tried to negotiate an open marriage. And then she said, you know, in a way I orchestrated my own undoing. The thing that you don't realize until you do is that your self-respect is the foundation that allows you to weather all manner of adversity and struggle. When you lose your self-respect, everything else becomes impossible. And then she said, I was the one who set all these traps to begin with. I had stolen goat away from his girlfriend. I had convinced him to marry me. And now I was changing my mind about the whole thing. I didn't even have the guts to tell him. So this sounds horrible. This entire passage and also just like a pattern, I think, in terms of when she would achieve something, but then she would get really afraid and run away because it might constrict her in some way. It's almost like she's playing out her mom's experience of being in the life that she had where she lost her identity, where she felt trapped. And it felt like she just keeps playing out that dynamic of being in a situation where any moment where she feels like she's being told what to do or she's trapped or she feels like she has to live for someone else or meet someone else's expectations. It's like that's when she bails or that's when she freaks out. It, it, it was really fascinating. And obviously she doesn't speak a lot about how the experience of her mom leaving affected her. But I feel like I felt it in so many decisions that she made both romantically as well as professionally. Like any time yeah. she was going to be trapped in some dynamic whether it was like the late night set or you know the record label that wanted to sign her yeah and I do think she gave a mention to her mom here of like I was recreating my mom's marriage totally and then this is kind of the one Dringo Prince comes through for a couple pages (laughs) and you know they play songs and it's a Prince thing the late night show you've been referencing is Letterman who was like come on my show and she was like I'm gonna sing a crazy song and they were like fuck off forever and she's like okay bye and um, And her team was like "Ah, yeah all right cool yeah and she has this whole thing about being a sellout and obviously that was a huge part of 90s culture of like are you gonna be a real artist are you gonna be a fucking sellout and I just feel so grateful to in this year now in this aspect of like selling out it's not even something I think about it's like making something to be enjoyed by the masses and getting paid for your art is just 
fully positive to me. Whereas I know that like people were judged so harshly of like, oh, you did a commercial, you sell out piece of shit. And now at least you can be like, I need money. (laughs) And they're like, okay. Yeah. I think like the capitalist hellscape that we're in right now, it's like, I applaud anyone who is able to make money doing something. That's exactly it. Especially off of art because money is leaving art. (laughs) As we go into our billionaire hellscape, art money is going down. So it's like, listen, you want to sell fucking flip-flops on your Instagram ads for you to write music, that's tight. But back then, it was more noble to say no to the thing that would take you away from your authenticity. Whereas now, if you're trying to stay noble and you don't have generational wealth, well, you're just poor. And no one will ever be able to reach your art. Listen, if you already came from money, fuck off. But (laughs) if you are fighting to get art out there and- you need money to do it. You need money. You need power. You need visibility. You need people around you. What else is more authentic than trying to get all those things so you can like get art out there that hasn't been seen before? Yeah. And I think, you know, throughout the book, she takes a lot of pride in the fact that she hasn't sold out in any sort of way. But that also makes you wonder like what she might have missed out on or like I don't know. I didn't get the impression that she was wholly satisfied with where her early career was since it was such a struggle. And I think that our pride and our self-respect or, you know, inflated self-respect probably prevents us from getting things in our grasp. I think that she made things really hard for herself is what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? This is so silly to say, but Maybe it'll be relevant. I remember not wanting to start a podcast. I wonder if you had the same feeling because you have a podcast too. I remember not wanting to start a podcast because I was so worried people would see me as less of a writer and creator and filmmaker if I had a podcast because people had unfairly been like, meh, podcast. And so many comedians had gone into them that they had this like feel to them that honestly was reminiscent of selling out. And I remember being like, oh shit, will people think of me as a writer if I do this? And, you know, thankfully, honestly, it was the pandemic. And so it was like, well, this feels like hell. So, you know, do what brings you joy. And I did the podcast anyway, but I still sometimes feel like, oh, well, if I podcast too much, will I not be an artist? And I think that's like such a ridiculous notion. And I hate that it's like still in my head, but I think it's like, that comes from this thing Ani's talking about. I think if you're an artist in any sort of way, a musician, a writer, a visual artist, an actor, I think you're always going to be faced with choices of, am I doing this for money and success? Am I doing this like to put something out into the world authentically? Like there's always going to be that push and pull. I think she tried to always choose authenticity, which doesn't always have to be counter to money or success, but it's like she took one path and I think she was just determined to only do that. And I think she might've left some opportunities to bring herself a little more wealth or success or connectivity or or expand her fan base in any sort of ways because she was just on this one path that was pretty narrow. Yeah, that was so well said and a perfect transition into the very last thing I want to talk about, which is her open letter to Ms. Magazine. So she said, in 1998, I wrote an open letter to Ms. Magazine. At the time, I was summiting the apex of my notoriety and in the media, I had graduated from angry bisexual to savvy entrepreneur. No sooner had the media embraced me that I was having trouble with the way that they embraced me. 
I was like, yes, Ooh, what is this open letter? I was so excited. I was like, yes, I cannot wait for this. And then she printed the letter. So she said, Ms. Magazine is the best. You guys are the most bold and babelicious magazine around after all. Problem is, I couldn't help but be a little weirded out by the paragraph next to my head that summed up her meanness and my relationship to the feminist continuum. What got me was that it largely detailed my financial successes and sales statistics. My achievements were represented by the fact that I, quote, make more money per album sold than Hootie and the Blowfish, end quote. And that- Dringo. <laughs> Dringo. Every time Hootie's mentioned. <laughs> Hootie. Hootie. <laughs> Take two shots. <laughs> and that my catalog sales exceed three quarters of a million. I was specified that I don't just have my own record company, but my own, quote, profitable record company. Still, the ironic conclusion of the aforementioned blurb is a quote from me insisting that, quote, it's not about the money. Why then, I ask myself, must, quote, the money be the focus of so much of the media that surrounds me? Why can't I escape it even in the hollowed pages of Ms.? Okay, then there's one, two, three, four more pages of this. This this was in a big envelope, you could tell. Big, thick envelope. I'm shook. And also this is towards the end of the book. And I said, this is why I don't enjoy this book because there are four pages of a letter to Ms. Magazine angry that they published her record sales and a little paragraph about women with their own record labels doing well. And all I could think was you have entirely missed the point if there is a point to be made, you're so far past it and you're so into it that you've published it and I can't read about this. I don't even understand what Ms. Magazine did wrong and I did read the whole letter. Yeah, and don't forget the part where she writes, I sell approximately 2.5% of the albums that a Joan Julianis Morissette sells. At first, I thought that she was trying to like, <laughs> would do some weird anti-Semitic thing for Alanis and then I was like, oh no, you're conflating Jewel and Alanis together. <laughs> and she wants to sell less records than them because supposedly they are sellouts. Like, is that what that she's was? Saying? That was the vibe that I got. She only mentions other female musicians in this way where it's not very complimentary. When she brings up Tori Amos, it's like there's that redheaded woman who like yelled at the audience. And then here's, you know, Jewel, Alanis. She mentions them in this way where there's no real recognition of like, oh, maybe these women are going through kind of exactly what I'm going through. It does imply that these women are sellouts for being on a big label. One of the many undercurrents in this book is that she hates being called an entrepreneur. She hates being connected to having any sort of capitalist gain where it's like, I made Righteous Babe Records as like a fuck you. But then she's also able to pocket all of those profits that she makes from, you know, her tapes. Like it is a smart, which is fantastic. It's a smart business decision. It is decision. one of the coolest things that happened in music yeah. is this record label. And she said no and still found success. And also women do not have the wealth in this country. Like give it to Ani. She doesn't see it as like a business decision. She sees it as like a moral decision that she made. And she's not able to hold those two truths at once because I think she's so deeply offended that anyone could call her a sellout or, or say that she's doing this for money when it's like you are you, like you are doing you have to do it for money that's the that's the only way that you've been able to survive if you don't do it for money you have to do a different job which means you can't make 
music or you have to make less of it. So if you want to make music and we want you to make music, do it for money. Yeah, and, there, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm I'm so curious where that got implanted in her head because I don't I don't know if I can trace it back to like her childhood or anything that re- she brought up really about how yeah. it's wrong to make money doing the thing that you love or that you can make decisions that bring you more wealth that aren't 1000% in line with, you know, your principles or, or your moral center. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Like there was a lot where I balked at like, oh my God, I think you're like taking this way too seriously on you. Like, it's almost not that serious. Like you can take a late night show gig and you're not selling out. There were things that I read where she was kind of being her own worst enemy in a way where it really did help like chip away at some of my own issues in that regard where it's like nobody Same, nobody is yeah. thinking about you and the way that people view you as much as you are. Kate Kennedy's book made me think of this with like influencer culture and how when they first popped up, it was like these fucking idiot girls being influencers, you know? And if you really look at it, it's a mostly female-led profession where you create your own work all the time. A lot of moms, a lot of like women are able to create from it and just sort of like shifting your mindset of what is selling out like and what is creation. And also as a kid from small shitty towns and I didn't even have a movie theater in one of them, please sell out, please sell out. If you don't, I will never see First Wives Club. (laughs) I need your feminism to be in First Wives Club. I need you to sing a song at the end. That way the movie will make it to me and my life will be changed. And if you don't sell out and you're just in a tiny little art house holding all your esteems, you know, within your own little 10 feet radius, like me shit kid in Colorado, like never gets to benefit from your art, you know? So yeah, I think anyone listening should take that away. (laughs) I agree. Well, okay. This goes into the book deal test. It's how I end every podcast. First question, was the author vulnerable in the sharing of her truth? Yes and no. Yes. She shared a lot, but I did want more of the meat of how she was feeling in a lot of these instances because I think she intellectualized quite a bit and it it took away from what I really wanted to know about just how she was feeling. Yeah. How do you feel? I'm going with, I'm going with a full no. I do think she gave us a lot of details, but I do not think she was vulnerable. And I do think she was in control of that choice. I think she just definitively did not want to give it, which is also Vani DeFranco. I will not provide my vulnerability for commerce of the price of my book, you know? And I was like, this is her choice. And yeah, I don't, I don't think she wanted to go there. Second question. Was it entertaining to read? Like, no, not really. (laughs) I really enjoyed how you got there and no, 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 not at all. And she creates such entertaining art. She's such an entertainer. She like takes her dress off yeah, on stage if it's annoying she's her. She's such like, a propulsive uh, performer and she's so powerful with her words. If you watch her like live performances, she's really magnetic and she's so captivating. But it was hard to follow. It was hard to keep all these men in one place. It was it was a lot. Yeah, I just think for me and my personal taste with books and memoirs, this was not the format to experience yes. her in. Final question. This could go either way. You never know. Did reading this book elevate your life in any way? Yeah, I think so. You know, like we had just talked about holding yourself back to maintain some sort of like, I'm not a sellout view, I think is only hurting yourself. I think that was really helpful for me to read. It was more of like, 
cautionary tale <laughs> more than like yeah, inspiring. Yeah. So, but yes, how about you? Yeah, it reminds me of my godmother Grace. <laughs> This phrase that she told me, and I think I put it on a mug for like Mother's Day for her once, which is, if you can't be a good example, be a horrible warning. Nice. Which I just think is so funny. <laughs> yeah. And would, I would love it to be my personal philosophy too. Like if we can't do good, let's let's go out on fire. And I do think this book was a, a lot of that for me too. And I just want to acknowledge how much Ani did for culture, for feminism, you know, so that I can sit here in 2024 and say, I disagree with how she views money or success. Like for her at that time and what she was doing, it was such a radical act. And because of all that work she did, now I can sit here in 2024 and say, actually, I see wealth and commerce for women as a feminist act. Women getting money is feminist so that we can be the economical change. And uh, oh my God, now I'm that person who started that high conversation at a party that you cannot escape that is all over this memoir. Brittany, thank you so much for coming on. Please tell everyone more about your podcast where they can find you and follow you and support your work. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on Instagram and Twitter, though can't tell you the last time I tweeted, I'll be honest, but my handle is Brit27Ash. I have a podcast called Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead, where, yeah, I have interviews with people who've lost a parent, and it's kind of like their own little memoir in like an hour where I completely remove myself from the episode, and it's just someone talking about the experience of losing a parent, and sometimes it's pretty funny, and also sometimes pretty sad. And yeah, that's on all the different places where you can listen to podcasts. And sometimes pretty funny and sometimes pretty sad is my favorite genre of art. So thank you so much. <laughs> and thank you so much for coming oh, on. This is so much fun. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. A huge thank you to our podcast producer, Christina Lopez, our executive producer, Jordan Moncada, our sound engineer, Marcus Hom, and our associate producer, Jaren Padre. I also want to give a huge thank you to our incredible partners over at Pattern Brands, Paquetto, Gear, and Yield. They have amazing glassware and candles and tiny spoons. They help us make a stunning tequila cocktail with our other partners at Tenteo Tequila. We will link to all of it in the show notes. Everything is in the show notes that you have heard from this episode. And if you have any more questions, go to the Patreon chat lounge and I will see you there.